Welcome to the 3D Parent Podcast. My name is Bevan Walters, your host and founder of The 3D Parent. I'm a certified parent coach and have spent the last decade living my calling in life, helping parents navigate the tough stuff like tantrums, sibling conflict, screen time overload, and managing the transition into the teenage years. My purpose is to provide you with the tools you need as a parent to lead with dignity, direction, and deep connection in your family relationships. My goal in creating the 3D Parent Podcast is to inform, empower, and increase confidence in parents so they can trust their instincts and make the best decisions possible for their families. For these reasons, I've rated this podcast FPEO for parents' ears only. Parenting is challenging, but you don't have to do it alone. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the 3D Parent Podcast. So I thought that for today's episode, I would go somewhat back to basics, back to some of the core concepts that I speak about on the podcast and what I call the three Ds of the 3D Parent. And the one that I want to talk about today has to do with direction and how we as parents can find the direction that we need to go when it comes to responding to our children and how we can increase our sense of parental intuition to understand how to respond and in which ways to respond to our children based on the behaviors that we're seeing in them, and particularly the behaviors that we'd often like to see less of, or at least understand what's driving them and where they're coming from. Now, in my parent coach practice, when I am talking to prospective clients or new clients, one of the most common types of questions I hear from them in the very beginning are things along the lines of, what should I do when my child behaves like dot, 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 when my child acts this way, when my child says this, and then they'll give me some type of a behavior that they see in their child that they would like to figure out how to solve, how to stop, how to extinguish in some way. And what they're really looking for there is the answer in the form of a tool or some type of a parenting trick or quick fix, or maybe they're asking what type of fitting consequence or punishment should I issue when my child behaves this way to try and teach them a lesson or again, make them stop. So they often are asking me, what should I do when my child behaves like this? And what I know in my heart and in my instinct and my own intuition in helping and responding to these parents is that what they're really looking for is understanding and trying to understand a way to make sense of the problematic behavior so that they can find a way to stop it or get their child to be unstuck from repeating the same types of problematic behaviors. And that's the problem. What oftentimes parents don't realize is that they're actually asking the wrong question in the first place. They should not be asking, what should I do when my child does this? What they should be asking themselves is, why is my child behaving this way? Or more specifically, what's driving this behavior? Or what's the root cause of this behavior? 
Because if they started asking themselves that type of question, they would be able to figure out how to respond to it and know what to do. So when they're coming to me saying, what should I do when? I'm helping them dig a little deeper and answer, well, why is your child behaving that way in the first place? I talk often on this podcast and with my clients about behaviors and that we need to look at behaviors as communication. And when we're seeing these behaviors, oftentimes parents just see the behaviors and feel like they immediately need to match it with some type of a response or consequence. And that's actually not the case. What I invite my clients to do is dig deeper and what I am now calling putting on your 3D parent lens, which is a different way of looking at your children's behaviors. So if you put on this 3D parent lens, this 3D lens, the idea is to see past or through those behaviors and to be able to identify the cause, the root cause, what is driving those behaviors. Most problematic behaviors are driven by some unmet need. So again, we're not trying to figure out what to do, but rather what's the cause because once you figure out what's causing the behavior you're going to know what to do now the tricky part is that determining the root cause of the behaviors that takes practice but here's the thing you've already done this you know how to do this you were practicing determining the causes of behaviors since your child was a brand new newborn baby or in instances of adoption or fostering since your child came home. You've been listening, you've been observing, and you've been looking at those behaviors and reading those cues and trying to figure out, okay, is the baby hungry? Is the baby tired? Is the baby maybe overstimulated? Is the baby just lonely needs to be held? You're already primed as a parent to look at behavior and then determine the cause of the behavior and then to respond to that and meet whatever that need is that needs to be met. So as parents of babies, we are instinctively already primed to do this. But that's somewhere along the line, and it's usually around the time that children start walking and talking and exploring their world, and then they start developing language and have an ability to communicate with us. And we start seeing things that are more complex and confusing. And rather than sticking this mode of, okay, why is my child behaving this way? Oh, I know, it's because they have this particular need okay, how can I meet that need? How can I provide for that need? Instead, we start getting all muddied up. We start doubting our instincts. And what do we do? Okay, we turn to books. We turn to classes, techniques, parenting experts, parent coaches. We start asking people who don't know our children, who don't know where our children are in terms of stages of development. They only know their own experiences or what they kind of remember or recall from when they had young children. And that's what we're going for to find the answer to what's going on with our child, what's driving behavior, rather than doing what we did when they were very young, 
when they were babies, when they were infants. And we would look at our baby and we would say, huh, there's this behavior going on and I need to figure out what's causing it so I can meet that need. And again, parents, when they have these young children, they have these babies, they learn how to decode. And with more practice and more experience getting to know their children, their babies, they start to be able to decode specific types of cries. You can ask a mother if they can tell what's going on based on the sound of the cry, and they can. They can tell you, oh, that's a hungry cry. Oh, no, that's a pain cry. That's a tired cry. That's a frustration cry. They can identify the different types of cries because they have practiced decoding and responding. And the more they practice this, the better and more accurate they're able to determine what's causing the behaviors in the first place. So again, when parents come to me and they're saying, what do I do when my, hate, my child behaves like this? I encourage them to, again, put on that 3D parent lens and take this different approach. And instead of starting with trying to determine what type of response or consequence they should issue, I instead encourage them to figure out what's going on, to observe, to look at their children with curiosity and start to practice decoding root causes of behaviors. Now, again, behavior is communication. And when, as I've explained, we look at behaviors, behaviors that are unpleasant or indicate distress or frustration, we see these behaviors and what we need to do is figure out the root causes. So today I'm going to give you some places to start from, not an exhaustive list, but I'm going to give you six primary and essential needs that all humans have, but we're going to focus on, of course, our children's needs and what parents need to look for to understand, first of all, what this need entails, what it looks like when these needs are being met, and what it looks like oftentimes when these needs are not being met, because that might help jumpstart you in being able to become a better decoder for your own child. The reality here is you are the one who's best able to determine the root causes because you are the expert of your children. And something that you read in a book or that someone shares with you is not as accurate as you because you're again, the one that spends the time and can actually decode behaviors with practice most accurately. But here are six primary needs that children have that we are aware of. They have physical needs. They have emotional needs. They have a need for connection, a need for play, a need for significance, and a need for autonomy. So just a little bit more about these six primary needs. Physical needs, those are the super obvious ones. Those have to do with the need for food, water, sleep, exercise, comfortable clothing that is like weather climate appropriate, the need for shelter, physical safety, and physical health. The second, emotional needs. Children need to be able to express their emotions, to feel 
all the full range of their emotions, to be able to reflect and think back on their emotional experiences. They need to be able to eventually mix their feelings and have conflicting feelings. And that, of course, helps them become able to regulate their emotions. And they also need to have the ability to problem solve when they're able to reflect on their emotional experiences. Then they can also problem solve, you know, the next time that they come across something that is distressing, they have an ability to be able to reflect and learn and grow and problem solve. The need for connection. Well, this is the need for affection, safety and security that comes from secure connections and attachments with their close relationships. They need part of this connection needs to involve feeling known and understood at a very deep level and the need to be able to rest in the care of another human being, that type of connection. When I talk about the need for play, they need to be able to explore with freedom where there is not rules. There is not work involved. They don't have to follow instructions. There's not just one way in which to do this type of play that I'm referring to here. Play that allows for complete creativity and expression. And there is not, again, a way in which you need to do this activity. So although we may call board games play, this is not the type of play that I'm speaking about. Although we talk about playing video games or playing computer games, that also is not true play because you're following an algorithm. There is a right way in which to do things. Yes, there are some types of screens and, and computer games that do allow for more freedom and creativity. But in general, the type of play I'm talking about is freedom from that type of rules and restrictions or following somebody else's rules or algorithms. When I talk about need for significance, I'm talking about a child's need to feel that they matter, to experience being seen and valued for exactly who they are, and to feel that they have a sense of meaning and purpose to their life, and that they also feel accepted unconditionally for exactly who they are. And then the last one that I mentioned, this kind of primary need is the need for autonomy, where children feel a secure sense of self, free from the influence of the will of peers or even parents, where they have this emergence, this energy of emergence, where they're able to kind of follow this internal drive to do things for themselves. And that's where they develop this authentic drive for independence, not one that's reactive or premature and caused by maybe something else like an alpha complex where they're kind of defaulting to try and be in charge. That's not authentic independence. We're talking about the authentic independence that is driven by this, I do it by myself kind of energy. The type of autonomy I'm talking about also has to do with freedom the need for freedom. And that's really about freedom to discover who they are, to develop and pursue their own passions and interests. And then also the ability to feel capable and self-sufficient that me do it by myself. When that toddler is just determined to do something for themselves that maybe they 
can't do as efficiently or as well as you, that's the type of autonomy that we're talking. There's a need to feel capable enough to be able to try things and do things that maybe at one point were too difficult based on age and stage. So now that I've described these six primary needs that our children have, I want to talk about what it looks like when these six needs are met, when there isn't something that is missing or a sense that there is a need that has to be fulfilled. We usually don't think about needs in this way because, well, typically the behaviors that are associated with these six needs when they are being met are pretty pleasant. And we just kind of enjoy the benefits of a child who is not feeling depleted or needy in a particular area. So we don't think about, well, what does it look like? So I'm going to do that for you now and talk about kind of the feelings and emotions and how it looks when these different six needs are met. So when a child's physical needs are met, well, there's the obvious. There's an absence of hunger and thirst. They're comfortable. They're not like feeling too hot or too cold. They're calm. They're content. They are well-rested. They are not agitated or restless or kind of bouncing around with this hyperactive energy. The next one, the emotional need. What does it look like when um, your child's emotional needs are being met? Well, this is where sometimes a child's emotional needs being met isn't necessarily always the most welcome, but I want you to think about this differently than you might be. And the sign of emotional needs being met is not the absence of emotions. It's not a calm child who always appears happy. That is not evidence of emotional needs being met. It's actually the ability for a child to be expressing the full range of emotions, not just the happy, content, calm ones. So knowing that emotional needs, what a child needs is to be able to express a full range of emotions. If they are expressing that, and you're starting to see the unfolding of what we know to be the roots of emotional maturity, meaning that as they're moving through the ages and stages, you'll be able to see development and their ability to regulate their emotions. The tantrums kind of move and kind of progress and they go away as children are better able to mix and hold on to conflicting emotions, which happens typically between the ages of five to seven for your typically developing children or for the more highly sensitive children. It happens somewhere around the ages of seven to nine. Nevertheless, What you're looking for, again, is not the absence of emotion, not the absence or only the presence of happy, pleasant, or calm emotions, but rather the full range of emotions. That's what you're looking for. That is evidence of your child's emotional needs being met. So moving on from that and understanding, again, that just because your child is having some emotions that are being expressed that are unpleasant, things like sadness or fear or frustration, that is still a sign that their emotional needs are being met. And they're just having to move and express them. The third need and what it looks like, the need for connection. Well, a child whose needs for connection and attachment are being met, 
that child is at rest from a constant drive to always want to be with you or in your sight or physically close. These children are receptive to your offers of connection. When you go up and you hug your child, they're receptive, but they're not taking the lead or always asking for you to spend time with them, for you to see them. Look at me, look at me, look at me. Or I want a hug or always need to come and give you hugs. They're not taking the lead and getting those needs met for themselves. They are receptive to it, but they're not working at it. They're resting and receiving. Also, a child whose needs for connection are being met is a child who is naturally orienting to you. They're taking your direction. They're following you and listening to you without needing to coerce them to do so. They're doing it naturally and instinctively because they're connected. And that connection drives that instinct to want to listen to, follow, and obey when they're feeling connected. The next need, the need for play for a child a child whose need for play is being met, that child is curious, is inspired, is creative and inventive and is joyful in their play. They tend to get really absorbed in things that interest them, that are their passions or just kind of something that they, they start playing and they get kind of truly invested in their play. This is also what I'm talking about in terms of the type of play and what constitutes play. This is not a child who's deeply absorbed and transfixed by, again, like a video game. This is a child who is transfixed and really engaged in open-ended play that is not results-focused, that is not incorporating rules and work, that it's like they get lost in their play. And for a young child, it might look like dramatic play and pretending to, you know, be a family or, you know, playing with your, their cars and, you know, having their cars have personalities or they're crashing or they're just really absorbed in their play. And for an older child, it might look like art, doodling, drawing, journaling, playing and making up songs on their guitar, or their piano or singing. That all is the type of play that when it's happening, and you're seeing that a child's need for play is being met because you're seeing evidence of it. You're seeing a child who can fall in and become absorbed by their play. Now, again, this is one of those areas where the need for play being met is sometimes also matched with some of our own, as parents, inflexibility with what the need for play being met sometimes looks like, which is sometimes a mess. <laughs> it might sometimes be um, kids who are just so curious about how this alarm clock works that they take it apart. Yeah, and that might be frustrating because they might be a bit destructive in their curiosity. And they're basically saying, I have a need for play and it led them to that. And that is communicating something that you might need to address. And also at the same time say, yeah, but you can't take things apart without asking permission first, particularly if it's still the alarm clock in your room that we need you to use every single day. But anyway, the point here is that the need for play being met is sometimes needing us as parents to recognize the importance of that play and prioritize that play over sometimes having a perfectly pristine, spotless home where there is no glitter, there's no glue, there's no paper, there's no toys out of place. If you are still struggling with 
understanding what is true play and what is not true play. Or you don't really see like that this truly does constitute one of these primary needs. I encourage you to listen to my podcast episode that I spoke in more detail about play. It's episode number 19 and it's called The Power and Importance of Play. So I encourage you to listen to that podcast for more on the need and why play is so essential for children, for all people, but we're focusing on our children. The next need, uh, need number five, is the need for significance. When a child's need for significance is met, you can see it because they feel confident. They're not changing who they are to try and fit in to the family or with their peers. You could see a sense of pride, and you also see that they're authentically who they are. They're not, again, having to kind of change who they are based on who they're around. And a child whose needs for significance is met also is more comfortable, maybe not conforming to what is going on with peers. They're original. They feel significant and confident in being exactly who they are. And that leads to them not always conforming to what the masses are doing, which is a good thing. They're being original. They're staying true to who they are. And then the sixth need, the need for autonomy. What does that look when a child's need for autonomy is met? Well, you see a child who is confident in trying new things. You see a child who has a healthy drive towards independence, towards trying things that maybe they weren't capable of doing before. And they're willing to take these risks because they are having this natural drive for the emergence of themselves to come forward. The other thing when a child's need for autonomy is being met is also a bit surprising in that their need for autonomy also will include continuing to push back against rules, continuing to test limits, and the need to, when they find that rules or limits that have been set are they don't feel are fair or they don't feel reflect the level of maturity that they believe themselves to have. So a child whose need for autonomy is being met, they're also going to be asking for more of it. That's natural and healthy and to be expected. Hey there, parents. Are you tired of feeling like your kids are in charge at home, negotiating, demanding, and generally calling all the shots? Well, then I have a free resource for you called 10 Steps to Get Back in Charge of Your Kids. Just click the link below to download your own copy. Let's get you back in the driver's seat. So just because a child's needs for autonomy are being met, they're constantly evolving, they're constantly maturing, and Because of that, that need for autonomy and the way in which they experience and feel fulfilled by that need being met is going to continue to evolve and change. And we as parents have to always be kind of looking at where they are and making decisions based on our understanding of what they are capable of. And sometimes it involves us having to do a little bit of a leap of faith to say, okay, I think you're ready for this. I'm going to give you the opportunity to have this newfound freedom and then see how it plays out. And they may just be ready for it. 
because that need to continue to become more and more and more autonomous starts the day they're born and continues until they're off on their own. So they have that need. And we as parents are in this delicate dance from the time they're young children to making this kind of shift when they get into that period of early adolescence and the early teen years. And then that continues through their adolescence and to their young adulthood, where we start giving permission for more autonomy and support and are that safe place to land when they make mistakes or fail, or for us to kind of course correct when the autonomy was more than they could handle and so forth. But nevertheless, that need for autonomy is there from the time they're very young and will continue to evolve. All right, so now what does it look like when these needs are not met? And this is typically the root of the question when parents say, what do I do when? They usually are saying things like, what do I do when my child is out of control? What do I do when my child is aggressive? What do I do when my child is whining? What do I do when my child is screaming that they're bored all the time? What do I do when my child has lied to me or broken rules? All of those behaviors are happening for a reason. And the reason, like I've already highlighted, is there's some type of unmet need that is driving those behaviors. So looking at those now with this 3D lens that I've been talking about to look beyond the behaviors, to decode them and determine the root causes. So the physical needs, when physical needs are not met, again, these are the most obvious ones. When a child's physical needs are not met, that's when you'll sometimes find them short-tempered because they're hungry or tired. They have difficulty regulating their emotions because again, even if they're capable of regulating their emotions, when their physical needs are not met, they lose the ability. They no longer can control their expression of their uncomfortable feelings at that time. Children whose physical needs are not met oftentimes are very agitated. They can't sit still. They're restless or have hyperactive or overactive energy. So knowing that those behaviors may have a root cause with a physical need, that's giving you a clue as to what to do. But we're going to circle back around and talk about what do you do when you've determined now what the unmet need is. Now what do we do? We're going to get to that next. The second need, emotional needs. What does it look like when your child's emotional needs are not being met? Well, it can look like aggression. It can look like frequent explosions, tantrums, meltdowns. It can look like sometimes destructiveness. It can look like Frustration that is now put on a sibling. It could also look like the absence of feelings or avoidant numbing behaviors. What does it look like when a child's need for connection is not met? Well, that looks like whining, constant and relentless pursuit of our time or our connection of our eyes on them. The child who's like, look at me, look at me, look at me. Or a child who constantly is needing to have physical contact with us. A child whose needs for connection are not met has an abundance of separation alarm. They oftentimes have a lot of disruptive bedtime routine, 
and bedtime resistance. They oftentimes have lots of night waking. They have difficulty playing independently. They need someone to always be with them, ideally a parent. They also tend to, if there are needs for a connection with their primary attachments, their primary relationships, their parents are not met, they oftentimes will seek that connection with their peers. And that causes a whole nother host of problems when children attach more to their peers than they do to their parents. They also may become really attached to objects, to things. That's also evidence of the need for connection not being fully met. And they also lack that instinct to orient to their parents, to listen to, to follow and obey. When a child's need for play is not met, they oftentimes have a lot of difficulty with the times that they do have unscheduled free time in which they could play. They get bored and they're on board or to do. They're distracted easily. They're not inspired. They're not creative. And they also tend to be resistant to going to planned activities because it's too much and they have a need to play. When a child is playing at home and you say, nope, you got to go. It's time to get off to that piano lesson. Oh, you've got baseball practice. And they just don't want to leave the play. They're so engaged. It might be because they need to play more than they need to do these other activities. When a child's need for significance is not met, you'll find them becoming very jealous, very jealous, particularly of attention that's given to their siblings. You'll find a child oftentimes with a low sense of self-esteem or negative self-talk. You'll see a child who performs and works to try and earn recognition and praise, or they go about trying to seek it elsewhere and from other places because they have a need for significance and they're not having that need met. So they're trying to search for where can I feel significant? Where can I feel important? If it's not at home, if it's not with the parents, well, they're going to try and find a place they feel significant elsewhere. And then lastly, that need for autonomy. When a child's need for autonomy is not being met, you might see sneakiness, stealing, lying, some backtalk and rule breaking, and a lot of counter will, meaning a lot of this resistance every time a direction is given. That child's need for autonomy may not be being met, and that may be leading to some of these behaviors. So now that I've kind of helped you understand what those unmet needs look like in terms of common problematic behaviors, that parents are oftentimes trying to figure out what to do when. Well, what do you do when? What do you do now that you're determining, okay, I think my child's hungry. Oh, you know what? I think my child really is seeking connection. You know what? I feel like my child maybe doesn't feel significant and valued and like they matter. So once you've determined what's causing these behaviors, what do you do? Well, I'm so happy to tell you that that's actually the easy part. The hard part is decoding behaviors, but it's only hard when you're out of practice. Once you're getting better and better at determining what's causing those behaviors, what unmet need is driving them, what do I do when? Well, guess what? You meet the need. 
And that means that you as the parent are going to provide the answer to that unmet need. So let's talk through that a little bit. When your child's behavior is driven by an unmet physical need, again, that's the easy one. You just provide for that basic physical need. So when a child is completely out of control, melting down, typically is, you know, a fairly well-balanced kid, but it just gets so hangry that they lose the ability to be rational. Oftentimes parents are like, what do I do when my kid acts like that? Well, why are they acting like that? Well, I think they were hungry. You give the kid food, okay? You provide for that basic need. Those are the easy ones. You just meet the need. You don't also have to punish them or berate them or shame them for communicating through the behaviors that they had this unmet physical need. They oftentimes are not aware, particularly if you have a young child or a child that's highly sensitive where these feelings are so uncomfortable, they're overwhelming. Yeah, it'd be really great and easy if a child could just say, you know, I'm just, I think I'm just feeling really tired and I could just really use a nap or I think it'd be better if I go to bed a little earlier tonight. Yeah, your child's not going to say that. You have to look and determine what's going on and then meet that need. What do you do? Number two, the emotional needs. What do you do when you determine, oh gosh, my child's emotional needs are not being met? Well, you provide opportunities and a safe space for your child to be able to express and feel and move those stuck emotions. You don't avoid these experiences of emotional upset. You don't try and steer around them and avoid those landmines that could be your child's big meltdown or expression of frustration. You don't just keep on fixing things and making things work to avoid that. And also you don't punish a child or make them feel bad for having emotional experiences and expression. When a child is full of frustration, they need to move that energy. And so when I say provide an opportunity for them to express, that might mean meeting that emotional need is to provide an opportunity through giving a very generous no, setting a limit, giving an opportunity for a child to experience that final little tipping point of frustration where what follows is gonna be that explosion and frustration and tantrum or all that emotion is gonna be expressed. Then those emotional needs have been met. You've provided that safe space and you've made it safe to be able to express and feel, and that's gonna help your child continue to progress in terms of their emotional well-being, their emotional growth towards maturity. When your child, you determine that the unmet need is a need for connection, well, you provide more connection. <laughs> you get there first. You trump your child's need for connection if possible. I mean, you get there first. This is a tough one sometimes when your child's need for your connection that behavior that is helping you decode that that is what's driving it is also at the same time as frustrating and annoying to you. I understand that. When children are extremely needy of connection, it's usually when we as parents feel the least naturally compelled to be very generous in providing that connection. But it is the answer. The answer is never to remove opportunities for connection that's not going to make this go away. That's going to make it way worse. 
So you provide, you meet the need and you get there first and you give more than your child is asking for and showing that they have a need for by their behaviors. You need to get ahead of it for it to be able to go away and calm down that need. You need to meet that need by connecting. What do you do when you've determined that what's really needed is play and your child has a need for play and that need is not being met? Well, it's a little obvious. Again, you need to provide time and space and perhaps take a look at your toys and make sure there's open-ended materials that are there. But you also need to, when I say provide time, you also need to prioritize play. You can't fill up every single moment of a child's life with activities and places to be and lessons and schools and play dates. No, play dates can be a place where they can experience true play. But they also need to have a chance to experience play independently. So they need practice at this. And if your child is not used to having this time and space to play, they may not be very good at it. Sometimes I hear parents come to me and say, oh, my child doesn't really play anymore. How old is your child? Seven. Mm -mm. Your child should be playing their entire life. You as parents should be still playing. Remember playing is also, you know, playing a little tune on your guitar, singing, journaling, drawing, being creative, art. A young child needs to play. And if they can't play, they need more practice. So if we're always sticking a screen in front of them when they're saying, I'm bored, we're not helping them fill this need. They need to play. And if they haven't had a lot of practice, they may not be very good at this. So even more opportunity and more prioritizing of space and time to play needs to happen. The next one, when you determine that What's maybe driving behaviors is that your child needs to feel significant. That need to feel significant is not being met. So what do you do? Well, you need to provide for your child evidence that you understand, that you know them, and that they have your permission to be who they are, not who you wish them to be. That they can become who they are. And they know this because they can be themselves and don't have to experience your judgment or expressions of disappointment or make them feel like they have to perform or change who they are to meet your vision of what you want them to be. And that's what they have to do to feel significant. That's what they have to do to feel like they matter. They have to earn it. They have to earn that feeling of significance. And that cannot be the case and is not the case. So yeah, as your child is emerging and determining who they are, and they're starting to show that, oh gosh, I actually don't like sports at all. And that's something that we kind of had wished our child had really enjoyed athletics. And that's disappointing to us. We have to understand that that's our problem. That's not our child's problem. A child deciding that, yeah, you know, I love running around and swimming, but I don't really like participating in sports. But what I really love is dance. Okay, great you're finding that you really are interested and you love dance, let's provide an opportunity for you to kind of grow and figure it out if this really is what you like. Not, well, gosh, you know, I really wish you didn't want to dance. Or I kind of really hoped that you would be the quarterback of the football team one day. And I didn't really see you being a principal dancer of the professional ballet company in town one day. 
you need to recognize what that type of communication says to a child. You're not significant. You don't matter. You're a disappointment. So you as a parent need to check yourself and recognize when you might be the reason why a child is not having their need for significance met. Or it might just be that they just need to have a little bit more time to play <laughs> the need before to kind of determine their interests. And then you can come in and say like, gosh, I recognize that you really, really love building tall towers with these blocks. You're really interested. You seem like you might be really interested in buildings. Let's go find out more about buildings. Let's go drive around town and go look at the tallest skyscrapers we can find. And that seems like something that's really interesting for you. Your child hears that and they feel understood. They're seen and they recognize that, okay, you may have no interest in buildings and architecture, but that doesn't matter. They recognize that they matter and their interests matter to you. And that feeds their feelings of significance. And then the last one, the need for autonomy. What do you do when you determine that your child's need for autonomy is maybe not being met? Well, you need to provide opportunities for your child to take risks, to maybe try things and perhaps fail, or maybe try and push through and really kind of dig down and persevere when things are not easy. And when they have that drive and you provide that opportunity, say, go ahead. You know, the first time your child wants to buckle up that car seat by themselves, yeah, you could do it a lot faster, but by myself. Don't feel triggered by that. That is them saying, I have a need for autonomy. I need to feel capable and like I can do this for myself. So go ahead and give them permission. Okay, let's go ahead and see if you can do that. That's going to help them continue to grow in their independence in a way that's very healthy, very age appropriate, and very much internally motivated. This is different than a child who is prematurely trying to become independent, that is trying to be in charge. That's different. That's not the type of authentic, emergent independence that I'm referring to. That's different. That's almost like a reaction and getting into so-called alpha mode. And that's different. The type of independence that I'm talking about is providing opportunities. And like I said, that need for autonomy is always there and always growing and developing. And we as parents are providing and empowering our children to step into those newly earned freedoms. And also recognizing that that's gonna come with a bit of leaps of faith and setting them up for perhaps them making some mistakes. And that does not mean necessarily that they weren't ready. Of course, if they're continuing to make mistakes or bend rules, then it might mean that. If your child's need for autonomy is being made known to you because they are sneaking and breaking rules and not able to stay within those confines, and you know it's not just about not being able to take their cues from you, it's really about the fact that your rules, your restrictions might be needing to be a bit more flexible and reflective of where your child is in terms of their maturation. Then you might say, you know what? I see that the rules I've made may not be working. Let's talk about why not. 
and let's see if we can problem solve together. I want to hear why you feel like these rules are too restrictive. I will take your opinion in consideration and I will maybe think about adjusting the expectations. That may be what's needed when you are seeing some problematic behaviors that are indicating that your child needs a bit more autonomy. So to kind of conclude, I just want you as parents to know, again, it's not about what do I do when? It's about figuring out what is causing those behaviors. You're questioning, what do I do when my kid does this? That indicates that you've lost some of that parenting intuition and that sense of knowing your child that was there when your child was very young. Go back to that place. Yes, your child is more complex being than they were when they were a teeny tiny infant and crying and you just had to determine what type of cry that was. They are more complex. I'm not going to deny that. At the same time, that instinct to decode and determine what's causing behaviors is still the approach that is going to get you where you want to be. So put on that 3D parent lens that I've been talking about and try to start determining unmet needs that's driving behavior in your child. Once you determine that, meet the need. Stop thinking about Responding to behaviors by matching it with a punishment or a consequence. Instead, provide what your child actually needs. It might be revolutionary for you and your family. To get this episode together, I did draw from several resources to provide inspiration. And I've included those inspiration, those resources in my show notes. So you can kind of dig a little deeper. There's an incredible course put out by the Newfold Institute called The Science of Emotion. There's a really great book called Discipline Without Distress. One of the things I really love about this book, it's written by Judy Arnold, is in the very, very back for parents who are kind of just trying to turn back on that parenting intuition. In the very back of the book, there's actually an index of behaviors and kind of like some suggestions of what might be causing some of these behaviors, what unmet need. And there's a longer list than the six unmet needs, primary needs that I've mentioned today. Um, that's a, a great resource as well. And then there's also a link to a PDF that has a list of feelings that are associated with when needs are met versus when needs are unmet that are really helpful. And there's a wide vocabulary of emotions and feelings that are there. And they also have those primary needs, a few that are different from mine, but some of them are very similar to mine in terms of those primary needs. So it's just more food for thought, more opportunity to kind of continue to think about approaching your children and responding to their behaviors through decoding them with the 3D parent lens that I've now given you. Take care and I hope you join me next time on the next episode of the 3D Parent Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in this week to the 3D Parent Podcast. I hope it has provided you with the inspiration you need for building stronger relationships with your children and trusting your instincts when it comes to parenting. If you have a parenting question you'd like answered on the podcast, or if you'd like one-on-one -on -one parent coaching, head over to the3dparent.com and click the contact tab to send me your question. If today's discussion empowered your parenting, please be sure to subscribe to the show, leave a rating and a review. 
Also, I'd love to connect with you on social media. So take a screenshot, share it on your Instagram stories and tag me at The3D Parent. I look forward to meeting you here again next week on The3D Parent Podcast.